thankful that the Lord blessed both of our musicians to be able to be here. They've both been under the weather. Uh, others were not so blessed. I think I got five texts this morning from members that said, we have the crud, we will not be there. I think this is the quarantine section over here, so if you want to move over there and stay away from everybody, you're welcome to do so. Uh, take your vitamins, stay healthy, stay away from sick people, uh, so we don't reduce more in our membership. Uh, if you need some vitamins, see my wife, she's good at putting vitamins within you, she does it for me, she constantly reminds me to take my vitamins. And I encourage you to do the same. But we do want to remember our members that are sick and others. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you that you have allowed us the privilege to gather together with your people to worship you in truth and spirit this morning. We do come before you knowing that we are weak creatures in need of spiritual health as well as physical health and we do pray, Father, for those that are unable to be with us, that your healing hand would be upon their bodies and that you would restore their health quickly so that they might return and join us in worshiping you. We pray, Father, that you would send your spirit and power this day to give us understanding of your truth. We thank you, Father, that you do not leave us to our own ignorance, but you have given us your very word which teaches us of who you are and what you have done in accomplishing such a great salvation and sending your only begotten Son into this world to earn us the righteousness that we could not earn and to pay the debt that we could not pay. We thank you for such wonderful grace and we pray that we might grow in our understanding of grace so that we might rightly praise you. For we know, Father, that left to ourself, we would not praise you, that we would continue in our sin and continue to forsake you in your word and your spirit. So we thank you for such grace that enables us to do that which is pleasing in your sight. We do pray, Father, for the salvation of sinners, whether it be here in this place or wherever the gospel is proclaimed this day, that many would be brought into your kingdom to worship you. Pray, Father, that you would be with those, as mentioned, that are unable to be with us, and you know their reasons and needs, minister to them. And this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. And even though we'll focus on verse 27, I want to read verses 25 through 27. Ezekiel 36, beginning with verse 35. The prophet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways, in my statues, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Last week we began to look at biblical grace, seeking to understand grace, God's free grace, God's undeserved grace, 
God's love expressed to unworthy sinners, and the fact that God's grace brings us in communion with the living God, the God who has created the universe, the God who has created us for the very purpose of worshiping Him. Now, remember the acrostic that I mentioned last week of grace, taking each letter, grace, or God's grace, I'll get it right in a minute, God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's a good way to remember grace. Now, one reason God's grace is so important for us is because it's the foundation for our worship. Matter of fact, look with me at Ephesians chapter 1. When Paul began writing Ephesians, he breaks out in a doxology, beginning there in verse 3, as he thinks about God's grace. He says, beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with what? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He's speaking of grace right there. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoptions as sons by Jesus Christ to Him according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of the glory of His grace. See, there it is. To the praise of His glory of His grace by which He has made us acceptable in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in Him. So we see that Paul is praising God for this grace, for the spiritual blessings that He has given, that He has adopted Him into the family, and therefore it leads to this worship. So we see that grace is truly amazing. And there's many words that are connected, many adjectives that are connected with grace. Free grace, abounding grace, astonishing grace, unmerited grace, marvelous grace, undeserved grace, particular grace, unconditional grace. And you could go on and on. All of these terms try to explain to us how wonderful and glorious grace is. Now, we know that God, who is our creator and sustainer of all things, gives to sinners that which they do not deserve. If you don't understand that you and I, because we're sinners, deserve hell, then you don't understand the gospel. The gospel clearly teaches that all men have sinned and all men have fallen short of the glory of God and therefore the wages of your sin and my sin is death. That's what God would do to us if we did not experience grace. That's what we deserve. People often say, well, I want God to just be fair. No, you don't want God to be fair. Because if God was fair, He'd send you to an everlasting hell. You want God to be gracious and show you mercy. 
Now, understanding grace intellectually is far easier than grasping grace in the depths of your soul. Until we experience grace in our soul, you cannot really understand grace. You have not experienced grace in your life. You may understand a lot of things about it, but until you experience it, you do not truly understand it. One of the examples that I was thinking of is like what transpired recently. Some of you know that David Locke makes delicious peanut butter brittle. That's one of the benefits of being in that older adult group. He gave all of us a package of that peanut butter brittle the other night. Well, recently, T.J. Mosley, he's been asking if he could learn to make peanut butter brittle, and David had him over to show him how to make it and showed him all the ingredients, how you needed to do this and that and put them together and, and cook all of this to make the ingredients of peanut butter brittle. Now, it's one thing to know everything that you've got to put in there and to be able to do it just at the right time so that it turns out good. And you can know all of that knowledge about peanut butter brittle, but how in the world did T.J. know whether his tastes as good as David? What did he have to do, children? He had to put it in his mouth, right? He had to taste and see if it was as good. Now, I don't know if it was good or not. I didn't ask TJ and I didn't ask David on that. But he had to taste it, right? Taste to see if it was good. Put it in his mouth. Well, when you taste it, there is a different knowledge. We call that what? Experimental knowledge. The same is true with studying God's Word. You can gain all kinds of information about God's Word and have great knowledge, but yet if God's Word doesn't change your life because of grace, then you're no different than the Pharisees of Jesus' day. The Pharisees knew all this about the Old Testament. Matter of fact, not only did they know a lot about the Old Testament, they memorized the first five books of the Bible, they also added to the Old Testament, coming up with 613 laws that they thought would enable them to keep God's law and cause God to look appreciative upon them. But yet they had no heart change, and Jesus constantly pointed out that to them. He said, you look good on the inside, I mean on the outside, but you are rank on the inside. You're filthy, and God will tell you, depart from me, I never knew you. But when you experience what Psalms 34, 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good, then you continue in grace. See, your life is radically changed when you experience the Lord. Once you have tasted the Lord... You're no longer the same. Your life has completely, radically changed. You have become a new creature in Christ. It's like that demoniac. You remember when Jesus came across uh, the sea and, and there on the shore was this demoniac. He, he was so crazy. He was so wild that they couldn't even keep clothes on him. They had to chain him to try to keep him away from the other people. And he would even break the chains. 
And people stayed away from him. Well, when he, Jesus came over on the shore, the demoniac comes running up to Jesus and, and we know he's demon-possessed and he bows down before Jesus and even proclaims him as the Lord and says, what would you have to do with me, Jesus? And what did Jesus do? Well, there were some pigs that some of the Jews were uh, owners of and, and the demons asked, don't cast us out, but cast us into the pigs. And we see that Jesus cast the demons out of the demoniac and uh, went into the pigs. And we see that the pigs ran and they committed suicide. Now, we see that Jesus did a marvelous thing in that man's life. He changed his life. And what did he do? He said, Jesus, I want to go with you. And Jesus said, no, you go home and you tell the people what the Lord has done for you. What happened to the demoniac? He tasted of the Lord and saw that he was good. And his life was radically changed and he lived the rest of his life for Christ. So we see that that experience he had, the experience of grace in his life, a person must taste to understand grace. He must experience grace personally. You can speak about how amazing grace is without really seeing and tasting how amazing it is. I can explain grace, but I cannot cause anyone in this room to taste it. Only God can cause a person to taste grace and experience it. And He does it by putting it in them. Now our passage today helps us to understand God's work of grace. When He says there in verse 27, I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statues and you will keep My judgments and do them. And then as we read this morning, and there's a combination of not only this particular verse here in the Old Testament, but also we find in Jeremiah a similar passage, as well as in the New Testament, which we read just a few moments ago there in Hebrews chapter 8, that speaks of this work of the Spirit of changing the heart. Now, why did God give these words to Israel? Well, back in Jeremiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5, it says, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Cursed is the man who does not obey the words of this covenant which I command your fathers in that day I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Obey my voice and do according to all that I command you. So shall you be my people, and I will be your God, and I will establish the oath which I have sworn to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, and it is this day. So we see that God gave Israel this command there in chapter 11, verses 3 through 5, after He had delivered Israel from Egypt. And He said, keep my commands. Now, I have a question for you. Did they? Remember what happened in the wilderness after they left their captivity? Did they keep God's command? I mean, remember when Moses went up on the uh, Mount of Sinai and he was up there a little bit longer than they wanted him to be? What did they do? What was the first thing they did? They made an idol and began to worship the golden calf. 
No, they did not keep God's commands. They could not keep God's prayers. They had no power to keep the law which God had given them. All the law could do is condemn them. So we see that God speaks about a new covenant later that would enable them to live a life of an obedience. And that's found in Jeremiah 32, 40, which is a parallel passage to this one we read here in Ezekiel. In Jeremiah 32, 40, he says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. John Calvin says, God states His doctrine, sets it before men with no effect, for it only sounds to their ear. It does not penetrate in their heart. There is then need of grace of the Holy Spirit. For except God speaks within and touches our heart, the sound will be to no purpose, only beating the air. Now see why the covenant is called a perpetual which God now promises. Do you see what Calvin is saying? He's saying all these words that God spoke there in Jeremiah chapter 11 were just beating the air. Falling away from there, they could not hear it, they could not take it in, they heard it, but they did nothing as a result. They, they continued in their disobedience. So what was needed, he says, the need of grace of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, unless grace comes by the Holy Spirit in their life, it's like water on a duck back. It just rolls off. Now you understand what I'm talking about. You've talked to people before. You've shared the gospel with them. You've told them about God's grace. You've told them about God's forgiveness. And what? It affects them no what? No, none whatsoever, right? They just continue to do what they have always done. Well, what's needed? Well, grace is needed. Grace of the Holy Spirit. So do you see that God says, I give a new covenant to enable His people to live a life of obedience. Now this wonderful promise gave the assurance that obedience would be their desire, that He would have a people that would obey Him. And they would obey Him because they had a heart that was changed that desired to obey them. Now how encouraging this is for Christians. But think about the other way. How discouraging it would be if our eyes were open to our unworthiness of God's favor due to our corruption and due to our sinful nature. But yet if we had no power to be able to do anything about it. I mean, wouldn't that be discouraging? That you knew that you were sinful that you knew that you were corrupt, but there was no power available to have any kind of change in your life, that would be so discouraging. That would be depressing. But God gives this promise that by His grace, He prepares and qualifies the people for the mercy and spiritual blessings He bestows upon them. His gracious influence and operation enables a person to obey His word. 
Now first we see that God promises that He will work a good work in His people, which enables them to live for His glory. And that's revealed here in these verses. And the same truth is taught in the New Testament, right? We see that Paul in uh, Philippians chapter 2 verse 12 speaks about the work of God, that work which we are to be performing to please God in our life. Now, of course, why do we do that work? Well, notice what Paul says there in Philippians chapter 2 verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but also more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So he says, continue to do that. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But, notice what he says next. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. So we see the only reason why we're able to work out our salvation with fear and trembling is why? Because God is working in you so that you work it out in fear and trembling. So we see that God promises to cleanse His people from their sin. Now He says there in this passage, I will sprinkle clean water on you. Now this points to what? I will sprinkle clean water on you. Well, it doesn't point to sprinkling babies when they're born. It's not pointing to that. It is pointing to Christ. It is pointing to Christ whose blood is sprinkled on the conscience. Now, of course, the Old Testament picture of that was the sprinkling of the blood from the Lamb on the people and pronouncing people cleansed. Now, it wasn't the blood that cleansed them. It was what? It was what the blood pointed to, that the blood of Christ that would be sacrificed on the cross would cleanse them of their sin. So we see that the sprinkling of clean water is pointing to the blood that is sprinkled on the conscience, that the conscience is purified and takes away the sense of our guilt of our sin. So by grace, the Holy Spirit sprinkled on our soul and purifies it from all corruption, inclination, and our sinful nature. So Christ was able to do this work because of who He was, the Son of God, that He was clean, that He was innocent, completely innocent. Otherwise, His blood could not have cleansed us. That's why we had to have the God-man. That's why He had to come as the Lamb of God. Behold, John said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then we see First Peter speaks of this in verse 19 of chapter 1. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of the Lamb without blemish and without spot. So therefore Christ was without sin, without any blemish whatsoever. So He was the spotless Lamb of God, and on Him our sins were laid, as Isaiah 53, 7 says. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. 
In other words, it pointed to the cross. He was led as a lamb to the cross. Our sins was placed on him at the cross and he paid the debt for our sins. So there is also the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, what is the work of the Holy Spirit? What is the name? Holy Spirit. So what is the Spirit's work? Holiness. To make us holy. He lives in us and He enables us to forsake sin. He gives us grace which enables us to put off the old man and put on the new man. To pursue holiness. And we must not grieve the Holy Spirit. The Scripture tells us that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. How do you grieve the Holy Spirit? By continuing in your sin. By ignoring His conviction. By doing what sin would have you to do instead of what God would have you to do. Remember the words of John Owens. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Let that sink into your mind. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Now, this only is done by the grace of God. The grace that God implants in your heart. And He gives you a desire to put off sin, to put sin to death. As James says in chapter 1, verse 21, Therefore, lay aside all filthiness. Now, how do you lay aside all filthiness? Again, by the grace of God. You have a desire to lay it aside. An overflow of wickedness. So you lay aside the filthiness. You lay aside all the overflow of wickedness. And receive with meekness the word implanted in you, which is able to save your soul. So we see it's the gospel that he's speaking of. The word that is implanted. Implanted word is the gospel that comes into our life by grace, by God himself, which is able to save you, which gives you a desire to lay aside all filthiness and wickedness. So do you see that the power to kill sin comes from Christ by his Holy Spirit, by the word? Did you hear that? The power to be able to kill sin comes from Christ by His Holy Spirit, by the Word. As I emphasized time and time again last Sunday, the importance of being in the Word of God. Daily devotion, reading the Word of God, taking in the Word of God, meditating upon the Word of God so that you might have the power to kill sin. So as we focus on extinguishing sin, we draw near to the throne of grace. How do we draw near to the throne of grace? Communicating with God. Having communion with God. Having that daily devotion with God. Praying with God. Drawing near, as Hebrews says, to the throne of grace. Do you know why people continue in sin? I mean, sometimes we scratch our head and we say, why in the world does that person continue in their sin? Do they not see that sin is destroying their life, that sin is destroying their family, that sin continues to destroy our nation? Do they not see it? Why do they continue in sin? The reason why they continue in sin is because they do not have grace and they have no desire for holiness. 
Their desire is for sin. Their desire is to live a wicked life. The thing about it, you and I were like that at one time. You and I, at one time, all we did was focus on self. All we did was focus on what we wanted, even if it was sinful. See, when sin has a negative effect on them, some seek to do something about it. I mean, in one sense, we know that they're helpless in that effort if they're trying to do it in their own strength. I mean, I know numerous people who have been in and out of rehab facilities and never changed whatsoever. I mean, thousands of dollars have been spent to be able to deliver them from whatever has corrupted their life. But because in their own effort and no grace in their life, They cannot be set free. Only God can set a person free from their sin. Matthew Henry says, When guilt is pardoned and the corrupt nature sanctified, then we are cleansed from our filthiness. And there is no way of being saved from it. This God promised His people in order to His being sanctified in them. We cannot sanctify God's name unless He sanctifies our heart, nor live to His glory, but by His grace. I mean, how true these words of Matthew Henry is. There's no way that we can live to the glory of God, but by the grace that He implants in us. Now, the second thing that I want you to see is that God promises to give them a new heart, a new disposition of mind. Now, this new disposition of mind is vastly different from the old mind. See, God would do this inward operation. What does He say there? Change the heart of stone to the heart of flesh. See, if you truly have an interest in the new covenant, the title of the new Jerusalem, you reveal that you have a new heart. You reveal that you have a new spirit within you, which is necessary to enable you to walk in the newness of life. Pilgrim's Progress is so good at teaching us about the different people who enter on the road toward the celestial city. I mean, you've got so many different people that think they're right with God and they think they're headed to the celestial city. You have ignorance. You you have um, Mr. Talkative. I mean, you go on and on. All these different individuals. Matter of fact, I went to try to find how many different individuals there were in Pilgrim's Progress. Bunny's not here this morning. I could probably ask her and, and she could tell me how many different ones are in Pilgrim's Progress that were not true Christians, but yet they thought they were headed to heaven. They were all talkative about heaven and, and they had all these questions and everything and, and some had entered by climbing on the wall instead of coming through the wicked gate and all the different things. 
And that's one of the good things I like about our ladies going through Pilgrim's Progress and learning all of this information so that they can talk to others about it. But it's so important that we understand that only those who have received a new heart and a new spirit are able to walk in the newness of life. See, God's grace, His divine nature promises to believers that they will be partakers, partakers of divine nature. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.4, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now that's a marvelous thing. That God would make us partakers of His divine nature. That He would put in us this divine nature, implant in us this grace, so that we would have a different desire in our life and we could escape the corruption of this world. Now, how amazing this grace is to know that we have this divine grace from God, this divine nature, that God implants His grace in us. And instead of having a heart of stone, a heart of stone makes us unaware, a heart of stone causes us to be ignorant and to desire the things of this world instead of the things of the world to come. But He gives us a heart of stone, that, that heart which He calls a heart of flesh, which is tender and which is soft, has the spiritual senses. It, it's conscious of spiritual truth and it desires to do the will of God. Renewing grace works a great change in the soul. He's no longer like He was. He becomes a new creature. He's no longer dead to the things of God, but He's alive to the things of God. He desires to worship God. He desires to serve the living God. In John chapter 9, remember the blind man that Jesus causes to see? And the Pharisees come and they bring Him before their group of men and they begin to ask Him all these questions. Matter of fact, they even went and got His parents and asked, was this man truly blind from birth? And his parents say, yeah, yeah. But then they say, well, you know, he's old enough to speak for himself and, and take care of himself. And they began to ask him questions. And they began to ask him questions whether Jesus is a sinner or not. And, and finally he says what to them? He says to them that I don't know I, whether this man is a sinner or not. I don't know. One thing I know, that though I was blind... Now I see. I don't know a whole lot about this guy, but he's caused me to see. He's caused me to see where I had never seen before. So there's what he's more or less saying, there's something different about this guy. And I'm going to listen to him. And I'm going to follow him. See, that's how amazing grace is. And we sing to him, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved, as the original said, a worm like me. I once was lost, but now what? I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. God opens our eyes to be able to see the truth. Twas grace that taught my heart to what? 
fear. And grace my fears relieve. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. So we see that that grace, when it appears, when, when God puts it into our heart, we instantly believe. We believe in Christ. We believe that Christ is able to forgive us our sins. We believe that Christ is able to give us that new heart to live for Him. Before grace, there was an inclination to always sin. It reveals our inability to do our duties that God required of us. And here we see that God will cause His people to love Him and cause His people to walk in His statues, to be obedient to His law. He will not only show them the way of His statues, but incline them to walk in them and thoroughly furnish them with a desire, wisdom, active power for every good work that He would have them to do. See, God graciously puts His Spirit within His people and He will be His people's teacher, guide, and sanctifier. Now notice, God doesn't force men to walk in His statues with, with judgment. But He causes them to walk in His statues by this internal principle of grace, which brings about a love for God. See, what use we ought to make of that gracious power and principle promised and put within us And it says there, you shall keep my judgments. Now when God does this work, then by grace we do this. What he's saying here, we keep his judgments. We have a desire to keep his judgments. Again, the promise of God's grace enables us to do the duty that we should be engaged in. And quickens our conscience, watchfulness, endeavor to our duty. So God promises must drive us to His precepts as our rule of life, our rule of conduct. And then these precepts must send us back to God's promises for the strength that we need. For without grace... What did Jesus tell us there in John 15? We can do nothing. So it's the grace that enables to do that which pleases God. And Jesus taught on that obedience in John chapter 14, verses 22 through 23. Turn quickly over there. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 23, he said, I mean, verse 21, he says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself in him. So we see there, he points out very clearly, those who love God are the ones that have loved Christ. And then he goes on and he says, Judas said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us? 
and not to the world. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. How glorious that is, that God promises to come and make his home with his people. That he will dwell in them. Remember Jesus also promised, he says, I'm going to send another one after I go to be with the Father. I'm going to send my helper, speaking of the Spirit. And my Spirit will come and live in you, enable you. And what does he say about that? He said, he who does not love me does not keep my word. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. So we see Jesus says, it's evident whether a person loves God or not. If he loves God, then he's going to be obedient. If he doesn't love God, he's going to be disobedient. So it's very clear. Now, this question may come to mind as I've been sharing this. You may be thinking, why do the faithful, the children of God, Christians, often stumble? Not not ten times during their lifetime, but ten times a day. I mean, if the Spirit of God lives in them, then then why do they stumble so often? See, the faithful indeed stumble often. But they never wholly fall away from the truth. Why? For God's grace keeps them. Calvin said, but we must notice that inflexible perseverance is given to the faithful so that when they fall, what? They soon repent. Hence, interruptions are no hindrance that God should not guide them from the starting post to the goal until they complete their whole course. So he's saying that God will cause them to persevere. They will complete their whole course because grace is in them. Now Augustine said that the Spirit so works in us that we are invariably having a good will. And he compares our state to that which of our first father, Adam. We know that Adam was created without any sin, without any stain. He was created in the image of God. So Adam was upright. And Adam was free from all evil. We can't comprehend that. We've never been free from all evil. But Adam was free from all evil. We know that we're imperfect. Though God has regenerated us by His grace and His Holy Spirit, but there abides in us still that remnant of the old man of the flesh. And that remnant of the old man hinders us. We are compelled to cry out with Paul often, What wretched man am I? And we confess We do not do the good which we ought to do, but the evil which is hateful to us. So go back to Adam. Adam's condition seems to have been far better than ours, right? 
Well, Augustine argues with that. And he states that God deals better with us now than He did with Adam. You say, well, how? Well, though He was created just, though He was created innocent, though He was without any stain, without any sin, yet He gave Him a changeable nature. In Adam having the only man, matter of fact, having free will, did what? Immediately he fell. With the free will that he had, immediately he fell. So my question is, what good then did free will serve Adam? I mean, there's people that always talk about, oh, we've got free will. Well, we don't have free will. Oh, I'd like to have my free will. Well, what good will that free will serve you? What good did it serve Adam who was completely innocent of all sin? What good did free will serve him? It didn't. He immediately fell. So why praise free will? See, Adam possessed it and cast himself down into the lowest gulf in which he could never by himself Rise again. Now concerning our spiritual state and why Augustine says we're in a better condition than Adam. Because though we stumble and our deprived lust entices us to evil, our corruption hinders us from running as we desire to do. Yet our condition is far better than Adam. You say, well, how? Because of God's grace. God's grace in us and all our conflicts with the power of the Holy Spirit so that we never are overcome or overwhelmed completely by sin as a child of God. Augustine calls it indefectible Constancy. Consistency. In other words, this is far superior to the excellency and honor which Adam possessed in the very beginning. Because it's clear, and here in the words of Isaiah, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them doing them good but I will put my fear in their heart so that they will not depart from me. So he's talking about everlasting grace that he puts in us. Even though we stumble, even though we fall, even though we sin, he says, I will restore you. You will complete the race. You will have this everlasting covenant. And I will put fear in your heart so that you will not depart from me. What a promise. What a promise to us who are Christians that we never will depart from God if we have grace in our life. Because God's covenant is validated as He reconciles sinners to Himself. And there's no doubt that God includes in that word faith, in that word fear. When He speaks about the fear, He says, I put my fear in their heart. 
He's also referring to the faith that He puts in our heart. So that remission of sin by which men return to the favor with God is included in that. Now this may be explained like this. Jeremiah states a part of the whole. See, the new covenant consists of two parts. God, in adopting us as His children, He forgives us. He pardons us. He pardons us of all of our sin, all of our infirmities. As far as the east is from the west, it says about our sin. He cast our sins into the depths of the sea. It says He remembers our sins no more. They're gone because Christ has paid for them. But then we are governed by His Spirit. So Jeremiah speaks only of that last part so that the sentence may be viewed as including a part of the whole. So when Scripture speaks of God's fear that is spoken of there in that verse, it includes faith, the faith that God gives us. Remember, faith is a gift, this not of yourself, but a gift of God. So therefore, as the psalmist says, cannot be feared except we taste His goodness. So have you tasted that goodness of the Lord? Let me close with this testimony. Some of you heard it. Charles Spurgeon. He says, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now. Now, you got to remember, Charles Spurgeon was raised by his father and his grandfather, both were preachers. He learned Greek at six years old. In other words, he was well gripped in the Scriptures. He was well trained. He understood the Bible. But even at this particular time in his life, he had not experienced grace. Now it had not been good for goodness of God in sending a snowstorm on Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place to worship. I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist church. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen to 15 people. I heard the primitive Methodists who had sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. But that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. Again, remember all that he had been taught by his dad, his grandfather, Uh, The church that he went to, and he still said, I wanted to know how I might be saved. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed in, I suppose. At last, this thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of the sort, went up to the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that this preacher be instructed, but this man was really stupid. (laughs) He was obliged to stick to his text. For the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly. But that didn't matter. There was, I thought, a glimmer of hope in that particular text. The preacher began thus. This is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, looking don't take a lot of pain. 
It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needs to go to, a man doesn't need to go to college to learn to look. But may be the greatest fool and yet he can look. A man needeth to be worth a thousand a year look. Any one can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says unto me, Ah, he said to his people, Many of you are looking to yourself. But it does not say look there. You'll never find any comfort in looking to yourself. So I say look to God the Father. No, look to Him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some on ye say, we must wait for the Spirit to work. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ, the text says. Look to me. Then the good man followed up his text by saying, look unto me. I'm sweating. Great drops of blood. Look to me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look to me. I'm dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look to me. I ascend to heaven. Look to me. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Poor sinner. Look to me. Look to me. When he had managed to spit out about ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his sermon. Then he looked to me up in the gallery. And I dare say, with so few people, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to having remarks made about me in the pulpit on my personal appearance. However, it was a good blow, struck right at home. He continued, And you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death. If you don't obey this text, if you do not obey now, this moment, you will be saved. If you do obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Lifting up his hands and shouting only as a primitive Methodist could do. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing, but you must look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so poised with that one thought. I had not been waiting for to do 50 things. Or I had been waiting to do 50 things. But then I heard that word, look. What a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. Then the cloud was gone. The darkness rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them, Oh, the precious blood of Christ, the simple faith which looks along to Him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. Yet it was, no doubt, always wisely ordered. And now I can say 
I have looked to Christ and been saved. Have you looked to Christ and Christ alone and been saved? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for such a great Savior. And we pray for those who have not looked to Christ, that today would be the day that they would look to Christ in simple faith and experience such a wonderful salvation. Be pleased, O God, to put grace in the heart of those that are here who do not know of your grace. For we know that only you can do that work of salvation. So we cry out to you, Father, to be merciful and gracious and pour out your mercy and grace upon such sinners. And I pray that we, Father, who have experienced this grace might be faithful to do just as the text that we have read says that we would be faithful and obedient to follow your statutes that you have given us, and to keep your judgments each and every day by the grace that you have given us so that we might bring honor and glory to your name. And it's in Christ's name that we pray and for his sake. Amen.